0: Please turn with me to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. Several years ago, I was uh, riding on an airplane, and I struck up a conversation with the man who was across the aisle from me, and quickly I realized that he was uh, a skeptic, he was probably agnostic, possibly atheistic, and at one point in the conversation, he said to me, you know, Brian, you cannot prove God exists said you can't prove it I Said Brian you can't even prove that you exist you can't prove that I exist I could be just a part of your dream or you could be a part of my dream you can't prove anything and I looked past him and I saw his wife sitting there and she was rolling her eyes and she probably heard this a hundred times and so I sat there for a moment and then I reached across the aisle and I smashed him in the shoulder really I did I'm not making that up And he he had that same reaction. He he said, what did you do that for? And I said, well, I was just testing to see whether or not you existed. (laughs) Evangelism 101, right? If all else fails. (laughs) Now, I didn't prove to him that he existed, but his pain validated the possibility that he might, in fact, be real. And his wife certainly enjoyed it. (laughs) I can't prove that God exists. But God has left evidence throughout the universe that he is real. David describes this in Psalm chapter 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. David, who had grown up outdoors, looked at the creation, no light pollution at all, and he saw the stars in the heavens, and during the day he saw the beasts in the field, and he said, wow, this is amazing, God is speaking to me, God is reminding me that he is real, that he exists, that he's true. Apostle Paul picked up the same theme in Romans chapter 1, he said, for since the creation of the world. His invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they, that is, all men, are without excuse. Since the creation of the world, God has been continuously speaking, continuously declaring his divine nature, his eternal power. His invisible attributes are clearly seen through what has been made. Do you believe that God exists? If not, what I'd like to do this morning is I'd like to give you some evidence that God exists. I'd like to help you move a little further along in your journey of faith, closer to the point where you can say, yes, I believe God exists. If you already believe God exists, this morning what I want to do is give you a little bit of encouragement, some reminders, so that you can have boldness as you move out into the world, a world which largely rejects the existence of God, at least the God that we understand in the Bible, can have courage as you move out, knowing God is real. God is real. So to give you a little preview of what it's going to look like this morning, I'm going to give you a a variety of evidences. We're going to start at the most general and move in a sense to specific. We're going to start with evidence for the existence of God, simply his existence, And then we're going to move with greater specificity toward the God of the Bible. God exists. God is powerful. God is wise or intelligent. God is good. And then finally, God is love. The great God, the one true God, who exists and is powerful, who created all things, is that same God who sent his son, Jesus Christ, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, to actually enter into creation and die on our sins because God is love. So we're going to move from the general all the way to the specific. God exists, and that is the God of the Bible, and God is love. So where do we begin? Well, we begin with this evidence. Something exists. Something exists, and you say, brilliant. Brian, that's amazing. Did you come up with that on your own? No, no, I'd help. (laughs) Have you ever noticed that something exists rather than nothing? Why is that? Why does something exist rather than nothing? Well, there's a law that governs the universe. It's the law of cause and effect. Every effect has a cause. Every occurrence, every event, everything that exists has a cause. This is the basis for all scientific inquiry. Man named John McCarry wrote, Science proceeds on the assumption that whatever events occur in the world can be accounted for in terms of other events. There was something that caused what you see. Every effect has a cause. Now, last week my iPad broke. I know it's tragic. But I opened it up one day, and uh, I noticed, you know, the screen was trying to send me signals, but you couldn't really read. The colors were all messed up. The images were messed up. So something was working inside, but it just wasn't, it wasn't proper. I, could, I, it, I couldn't use the thing. So I brought it to uh, Ely Biet. You guys who are in 20s, 30s know Ely. Ely is our director of IT. And so I handed it to Ely, and he opened it up, and he said, your iPad is broken. <laughs> that's, that's a great man. Thank you. Yes why? And he said, well, clearly it's been dropped. That's what causes this effect. Did you drop it? And I said, no, Ely, I didn't drop my iPad. I didn't drop it. He said, well, someone dropped your iPad. So I went home (laughs) and I said, I said, "Who, who dropped my iPad? My son said, I didn't drop your iPad, dad. And my daughter said, I didn't drop your iPad, Dad, and so I turned to my wife in anger. No. I said, Tristie, did you drop the iPad? She said, no. She said, I tossed it onto the bed once, but I didn't drop your iPad. And so I brought it back to Ely, and I said, well, you know, Tristie said she tossed it on the bed. He said, no, that didn't cause this effect. Someone dropped your iPad, so I went back home. And I gathered the family together. I said, someone dropped my iPad, and, and none of you dropped it, and I didn't drop it so I know what happened. Zombies. We, we have zombies in our home, and I just want you to be aware that they're running around and they're doing things in our house, and all of the bad effects that we see must be zombies, because no one here is responsible for this effect. Now, every effect has a cause. Somebody dropped it. No one, no one would own it, but it was dropped. So Ely fixed it. Ely fixed my iPad, and he sent me a text and he said, ask me tomorrow how I fixed your iPad. So I came in and I said, I'm dying to know, how did you fix it? And he said, I hit it with a hammer. So <laughs> said, no kidding, I got on YouTube source of all truth, and he said, this is, this is the prescribed fix. So if it's broken, something gets jarred loose when it's dropped. The way that you fix it is you hit it. Now, only a professional IT person can do that, right? Because you've got to hit it in exactly the right spot with the right amount of force. But sure enough, the fix was to hit it with a hammer. And now it works perfectly. Every effect has a cause. Everything. Everything. There's nothing that you see that does not have a cause. Second principle the universe is a very big something. It's a very big something. Our universe is comprised of immeasurable amounts of matter and energy in motion. Where does it come from? Many, if not most scientists would say Big Bang. The Big Bang caused the universe. According to the theory of the Big Bang, all matter and energy was compressed. So dense, it took up a tiny amount of space, so small that you could theoretically hold it in your hand. Of course, there were no people back then, and it would weigh the weight of the entire universe. You couldn't hold it up, but it was compressed. All matter, all energy, compressed. And then it exploded, and it sent out matter and energy it formed the universe. Now, I, I'm not here to debate this morning the merits of the Big Bang Theory. I just want to raise the question, what then caused the Big Bang? If the Big Bang were true, and I'm not even necessarily saying the Bible is teaching such a theory, but what caused it? Because the universe is an amazingly large effect, and some would say it's ever-expanding even. What caused it? What caused it? Well, the Bible would say, in some form or fashion, using some mechanism, which we're not told, God created. There was nothing, and then there was God creating. God existed before Anything else existed. He is the uncaused cause. He's not subject to the laws of the universe because he's outside of the laws of the universe. He created the laws of the universe. He is the uncaused cause. And if it's not God, if it's not one who exists outside of the effect, then what are we left with? Nothing. We're left with nothing, literally. Nothing caused something. That's the only logic that prevails. If there is not God, nothing caused something. Quentin Smith, who's an atheistic philosopher, frequently debates Christians on this topic. He said, the most reasonable belief is that we came from nothing, by nothing, and for nothing. Is that reasonable? Is that reasonable? Nothing caused something. Stephen Hawking wrote, Spontaneous creation is the reason why the universe exists. It is not necessary to invoke God. In other words, there was nothing. And then there was something. Is that reasonable? It defies everything we've ever experienced in our own personal lives, it defies everything that has ever existed in all of human experience. Every effect has a cause. Every effect has a cause. It's most reasonable, in my opinion, to say that there is something or someone outside of creation, an uncaused cause that acted and brought everything into existence. Have we proven God exists? No. No, we haven't. But we've validated that it's more reasonable to believe that a God exists and that he is powerful because every effect has a cause. And the cause must be adequate or large enough to explain the effect. And the effect of the universe, what we see, is enormous. It's amazing. It's grand. Every effect has a cause. Something exists rather than nothing. And this universe that exists is not only huge and awesome, it is also exceptionally complex. The universe is complex. Now I want you to imagine with me for a moment... But you're walking through the woods on a rainy day, and you look down in the mud, and there's an iPhone. And for you Apple haters, you're like, awesome, that's exactly where it belongs, right there in the mud, right? (laughs) So I want you to just suspend that and, you know, love your Android, whatever, for the moment. But right now, just work with me on the illustration, okay? Imagine that you look down, and you kick this thing, you reach down, and it's an iPhone. You've never seen one before, never seen one before. And you pick it up and start punching buttons. There's no passcode on it, and so it just just opens up, and there it is. And you look at this thing, and you go, this is amazing. There, there There are letters on here, and they're arranged in words, and I can read it. This is in my language. This is amazing. And there are images on it, and these images portray something that I can understand. It's intuitive, almost, and I look at this image, and look, there's an image of a map, and below that image of a map, it says... Maps. This is amazing. All right? This is remarkable. And so you touch it. All of a sudden this image begins to form and a blue dot drops in the middle of the screen and says, This is where you are. Here you are. And you go, Wow, that's remarkable. That's amazing. Because I know, yeah, I'm on that street right there. That's how did it do that? And then this thing starts to ring and vibrate. And amazingly, again, it's intuitive. there's an arrow. It's, you, know, you can just slide, so you just push that arrow, you push it across. Peter, you go, "Hello, and it's your mom. <laughs> it's your mother." And she says, "Honey, where are you? You, go, Mom, you won't believe this. I know exactly where I am. There's a map here, and I can tell you my latitude and longitude. Here I am. And you begin to describe all the amazing features of this thing. It's stunning. Where did this thing come from? What's most reasonable to believe? You're walking through the woods. And what's happened is, through billions of years, random forces, rain and sun and maybe some volcanic activity even, has has conspired to create this marvel of technology. It just occurred. Is that the most reasonable thing to think? Or is it more reasonable to say, no, some very intelligent people somewhere sat down and worked together to create this thing. And then somehow it was sold to a fool who dropped it in the woods. But creators, there were creators, there was design. How complex is this piece of technology, and how much more complex is the human mind that thought of it? So there, there are complex systems within the universe, but the universe itself is complex. It has been described as a, a finely tuned, universe. A finely tuned universe. Michael Turner is a University of Chicago astrophysicist and he said, the precision, that is the precision of the universe itself, is as if one could throw a dart across the entire universe and hit a bullseye one millimeter in diameter on the other side. It's simply that precise. Francis Collins was uh, an atheist, he's a scientist, a chemist, a doctor. And through his examination of the universe, he came to faith in God. And he wrote a book called The Language of God. It's an excellent book. I'd highly recommend it. He said this. When you look from the perspective of a scientist at the universe, it looks as if it knew we were coming. It's been described as the cosmic welcome mat. There are 15 constants Gravitational constant, various constants about the strong and weak nuclear force, etc. that have precise values. If any one of those constants was off by even one part in a million, or in some cases, by one part in a million million, the universe could not actually have come to the point where we see it. Matter would not have been able to coalesce. There would have been no galaxies, stars, planets, or people. In other words, unless the universe had been so finely tuned it wouldn't have come into existence at all. It would have just been random matter and energy in motion. But because the universe is finely tuned, planets and stars coalesced. And not only is the universe finely tuned, but specifically this planet is finely tuned. Life could not have existed if this planet had not been finely tuned. Is there life in other places in the galaxy? Well, certainly that's possible, isn't it? But we know that life exists here because the universe is finely tuned and because this planet is finely tuned. That's why life exists in this place. It's called the anthropic principle. The anthropic principle. Stephen Hawking, in A Brief History of Time, had to admit it would be very difficult to explain why the universe would have begun in just this way except as the act of a God who intended to create beings like us. Stephen Hawking says, in other words, it, it's hard to explain why this thing exists that is so complex and can support life. It's so difficult, it's, it's improbable, and yet I reject the existence of a God. I reject the existence of a God. Sir Fred Hoyle was a Cambridge astronomer. Not a believer. He's actually the man who coined the phrase, uh, the Big Bang. He set about to study the probability mathematically that a single cell would come into existence spontaneously, by random chance, not just on Earth, but anywhere in the universe. What was the probability of that? He concluded this. If a tornado went through a junkyard, creating a functional 747, that would be child's play by comparison. That led him to further conclude... The fact that life exists anywhere in the universe can only be explained by the pre-existence of some gigantic intelligence which, if you wish, you may call God. Thank you, Sir Hoyle. I, I will say, that's God. Have we proven God? No, I have not proven that God exists but we've validated that it's reasonable to believe in the existence of God in the power of God in the wisdom and intelligence of God because these attributes are reflected in all of creation everywhere you turn third evidence man is a marvel mankind is a marvel you know there are many things that we share with the animal kingdom certain structures in our bodies, there are systems that function within our bodies and organs and even down to the cellular level, a lot of similarities, but there are certain things about men and women, about mankind that you simply don't see in the animal kingdom. One of those is our sense of morality, our sense of, of right and wrong. Have you ever seen somebody do something and you say to yourself, "No, that's that's wrong, and deep in your heart, you say to yourself, it's not just wrong for that person at that moment in time. No, that's just wrong. That person shouldn't do it. I shouldn't do it. No one should do it. It doesn't matter where they live or what age they live in. That, that's wrong. Certain human behaviors that we read about and we say, that, that is, that's wrong. It's so wrong, in fact, that as a society, we agree and we say, no, that behavior will not be accepted. We might even label you. And stick you away from us and lock you away and say, no, you can't be with us because the way you behave is wrong and we've determined such. You ever seen something, you say, no, that's wrong in another country, but really it's wrong everywhere. Child slavery, genocide, president of Syria, using chemical weapons against his own people, is that wrong? Would you declare it's wrong? How do you know that it's wrong? Where does that sense of wrongness come from? If not God, if it's not given to us from outside and placed within us from an absolute objective giver of law, then where does it come from? Well, our only other option is that morality was something that evolved. Through random chance and circumstance, man's moral nature emerged. It evolved. I want to give you a a few thoughts on that. There are three observations in particular that I have uh, made on this concept. First, without God, there are no absolutes. If there is no God, you cannot actually say something's wrong or something's right. You can't say it. You can say you prefer something And you don't prefer something else. You can say something affects you in a positive way that you enjoy and something else does not. But you can't ultimately say something is wrong or right. Say it's beneficial to your species or not beneficial to your species. But you can't make an absolute declaration. I will tell you, none of us live that way. None of us live that way. There are things deep down we say, no, that's just wrong. And I know it's wrong. And it's not because we voted that it was wrong as a society. No, it's just wrong in an absolute sense. And it's wrong, not wrong just because I personally think so. It's, it's simply wrong. It's right and wrong. But without God, you really cannot make that statement. There are no absolutes. Because there's nothing outside of creation that can make such a declaration. Okay? Without God, there are no absolutes. Second, there is no moral accountability outside of humanity. Okay? If evolution is true, then, then we're just a, a higher order. Within the animal kingdom, right? We just have evolved a little bit further than others. But if we look at the animal kingdom, there is no moral accountability. Outside of humanity, we just don't see that. Now, I live in a kind of semi-rural area. I actually saw a bobcat run through our yard a couple months ago. Now, as you know, against my will, I purchased a cat. We own a cat. But if that bobcat had come through and killed my cat, I would not have any sense of moral outrage. <laughs> I, would, I would feel sad for my children, right? <laughs> but I wouldn't have moral outrage toward the bobcat. I would say that bobcat is acting according to his nature. My neighbor's dog uh, used to get out all the time. Okay? And he'd visit all of the female dogs... In the neighborhood. My neighbor had no sense of moral outrage over this behavior. He did lock his dog up, right? But that's because he didn't want to make the neighbors mad and he didn't want the city to fine him. But he didn't have a sense of moral outrage against his dog. His dog was just acting according to nature. And we don't hold animals morally accountable. But we do hold one another accountable. Third observation, morality works actually against evolution. And morality works against evolution. There are things that we naturally praise and things that we naturally condemn. We condemn, for example, murder. But if evolution is true, then murder might be a good, at least for me and my family, because I'm eliminating rivals. So that my genetic code has a greater chance of surviving, and all evolutionists would agree that the selection happens on the individual level, not on the species-wide level or the community level. I might make a choice and say, no, I'm going to eliminate rivals, so that my, my particular family, my genetic code has a greater chance of survival. I could steal But morally, we say, no, we don't approve of stealing, but stealing might be a good. If I can take more resources from you and pass them on to my progeny, then they have a greater chance of continuing on, and my genetic code is prospering. On the other hand, what do we praise? We praise many things. One of the things that we praise the most is self-sacrifice. One of the highest demonstrations of moral virtue is self-sacrifice. When a husband lays down his life for his wife, when a wife lays down her life for her children, we praise that. And we could say, well, from an evolutionary standpoint, that's good because they have preserved their genetic code through their children by laying down their life for one another. But what do we praise even more than one laying down his life for a friend when one lays down his life for a stranger? Who are the people that we call heroes and we give medals of honor, those who lay down their lives even for strangers, those from whom they get nothing in return, or when they do it and they don't seek praise from anyone, they don't want their name in the paper, we say, that's amazing, that is virtuous. But such an act cuts off their genetic code, it cannot continue on. The morality goes against evolution. It doesn't preserve itself. The person who is most moral might be the least likely to continue on because he gives or she gives and sacrifices even to the point of death. Cutting off that line. Morality works against evolution. So could evolution produce morality? That's possible. But it's not likely. It is much more likely that the morality that we experience, our sense of right and wrong and good and evil, comes from one who is himself good. And he has written on our hearts this innate sense of moral law. Paul describes this in Romans chapter 2. He says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, They show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. Where does this come from? We would say this is an echo. It's As C.S. Lewis describes it, it's a clue to meaning in the universe. This sense of right and wrong within us. Have we proven God? No, we have not proven God. But what we've proven is it's reasonable to believe that God exists, that he is powerful, that he's wise, and that he's good. Immanuel Kant wrote, Two things fill me with constantly increasing admiration and awe. The longer and more earnestly I reflect on them. The starry heavens without and the moral law within. Fourth evidence, there is love. There is love. How do we explain it? Well, there are many religions in the world, and in fact, most people do believe in some form of God, some existence of God. According to the latest stats I saw, Uh, There are 2% people in the world that declare themselves atheists, about another 10% who declare themselves non-religious, but the vast majority of the world believes in God. If you look at the worldviews other than Christianity, the predominant ones are polytheism and the monotheism of Islam. Other than the Christian concept of God, polytheism You see like in Hinduism or animism and some forms of neo-paganism or the monotheism of Islam, which accounts for about 25% of the population in the world, 7 billion people. So let's consider God as a concept in polytheism. God or gods. What are the gods like in polytheism? Well, you know, they're, they're, they're actually pretty small. They're a lot like us, sometimes a little better in their behavior, sometimes a lot worse in their behavior. They can be immoral, they are jealous, they're petty, they're always fighting, they're killing one another. Sometimes they're able to be raised from the dead, but sometimes not. They are not, in other words, anything like a God that we would want to have a personal relationship with. They're small, they're very, very small. What is the God of Islam like? Well, Allah is alone. Their concept of God is a, a unipersonal monotheism. In other words, Allah was alone. Before He created, He had no relationships. He was alone. He lacked. There was a lack in Allah. He lacked, in fact, something that we consider essential to life itself Allah was alone. Allah had no relationships. Allah had never experienced love. And so the followers of Allah are never encouraged to love Allah. They're encouraged to submit. Submit. A Muslim is one who submits. Islam means submission. Because the central attribute of Allah is not love, it is power. It is sovereignty. And so Allah created in order to exhibit his power, his sovereignty. And the response to that is submission, not love. The God of the Bible is in his essence relational and personal. I want you to turn back again to Genesis chapter 1 with me and verse 1. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the water. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. In the beginning, we have God. In the beginning, we have Father, Spirit, and Son. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And his Spirit was hovering. It's a very intimate, personal term. It is a mother, bird, hovering over. God's Spirit is hovering over creation. We have Father, we have Spirit, and then God spoke the word of God came out for the first time, let there be light. And what is the word of God? The New Testament tells us, in fact, I want you to turn to John chapter 1. John chapter 1 occurs chronologically in the history of the earth before Genesis chapter 1. John chapter 1, verse 1. John is obviously, obviously referring and alluding back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. He starts his gospel like this. In the beginning was the Word. What was the Word? The Word was the creative power of God, the spoken Word of God through which God created. What was that Word? Well, in the beginning was the Word. It was preexistent. Before the beginning occurred, the Word already was. Why? Because the Word was with God, that is distinct from the Father, but the Word was also God. The Word is the second member of the Trinity. The Son of God. Eternally existent. The creative agent. In the beginning, God was creating together. Father laying out plans. Spirit hovering and energizing. The Son, the agent of creation. All things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being All of creation happened through the agency of the second member of the Trinity, the Son of God. We have Father, we have Spirit, we have Son. Verse 14, that word which is eternally existent became flesh at a moment in time, entered into creation and dwelt among us and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so I ask you, what was God? Father, Spirit, and Son doing before creation? Was God bored? Was God lonely? No, our understanding of God is that God lacked nothing. God didn't create because he was lacking something. So what was God doing before creation? And what motivated God to create in the first place? I want you to turn to John chapter 17 and verse 5. John 17 verse 5. The word of God is speaking. God's Son speaks to the Father. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Before the beginning, Father, Son, and Spirit were sharing glory. Now, what does that mean? Look at verse 22. What does it mean that they were sharing glory? Verse 22, chapter 17. The glory which you have given me I have given to them that they may be one just as we are one. I and them and you and me that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me Be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. What were Father, Son, and Spirit doing before they created? They were loving one another. They were loving one another. They were not lonely, they were not bored. They were completely filled with the sharing of the glory that they each possessed as the one true God. They were loving one another. God is relational and personal by nature. God is love. God demonstrated his power through creation because he wanted to share love. Because God is love, it is in his nature to share love and to give love. And so he created beings in his image that could experience his love. As Jesus said, that I would be in them as you are in me, that they may be perfected in unity. Just as Father, Son, and Spirit enjoyed unbroken perfect fellowship forever and ever and ever before creation. That they would enter into that and enjoy it with us forever because God is love. God has demonstrated his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God loves us. And so God sent the eternal son of God to take on human flesh to who was, who was outside of creation, independent of creation, not contingent upon creation, to enter into creation and take on human flesh in order to die for us so that we could be in relationship with God. For God so loved the world that he gave Because that's what God does. Because God loves. God is love. And this is love. Not that we love God first, but that he loved us. God is love. That is the God of the Bible. George Marsden wrote, The ultimate reason that God creates is not to remedy some lack in God, but to extend that perfect internal communication of the triune God's goodness and love. The universe is an explosion of God's glory. Perfect goodness, beauty, and love radiate from God and draw creatures to ever increasingly share in the Godhood's joy and delight. The ultimate end of creation, then, is union and love between God and loving creatures. That's why we're here. That is why God created If you reject God, there is no hope, there is no meaning, there is no morality, there is ultimately nothing. You will live and breathe and die and you're gone. If you pursue God through religion, there is no hope. Because religion tells you work and work and work and work to earn that great God's favor. But the triune God says, no, I, I'm far beyond what you could even comprehend. Let alone could you make yourself worthy to enter into this fellowship that we three enjoy. Instead, let me just give it to you as a gift. That is the marvelous, matchless, wonderful grace of God. Believe. And so I encourage you this morning, if you have not yet believed in God, believe. Believe that he sent his son to take on human flesh so that he could die. Because God cannot die, but he took on human flesh so that he could die. To pay for your sins so that you could be brought into a relationship with this matchless God. Believe. If you haven't believed yet, let me encourage you, seek. And don't stop seeking. I'm going to give you a few resources. If you are seeking God, we will be posting things on our Facebook page. I'll be posting things on my Twitter account. Let me give you three awesome books. There are hundreds of books I could give you, so I'm narrowing it down. Okay? The Reason for God by Timothy Keller. Excellent recently published book that really summarizes a lot of arguments that you will see other places, but is so well written. Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. The Case for a Creator and the Case for Christ by Lee Strobel awesome, excellent resources if you are seeking. If you are a Christian and you are doubting, let me relieve your mind. You are not alone. There are other people who are sitting here this morning who have believed in Jesus Christ. But from time to time, we all experience doubt. Let me tell you Why I believe God exists. Because when doubts come on me, this is where I go. This is the process through which God reminds me of himself and encourages my heart. I remember that the universe exists. (laughs) There is something, not nothing. How can I possibly explain that something exists and that this something is so massive and so complex God exists, he must exist, and he must be powerful, and he must be wise and intelligent to make something like this. And man is a marvel. Certainly not perfect, but embedded within us are clues to the existence of God. We have a sense of right and wrong, and good and evil, and a sense of absolute. That reminds me that there's a powerful, wise, and good God, but that doesn't get me quite far enough. How do I know that it's the God of the Bible who is that one true God? First, I remember the witness of history. The Bible is a historically accurate document, time after time after time. History and archaeology have confirmed the accuracy of this text, in particular, the accuracy of the accounts of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The only reasonable explanation for those accounts is that there was, in fact, a man named Jesus who died and was raised from the dead. And when he spoke, he spoke truth. And then finally, the uniqueness of grace. You you cannot find grace anywhere else. In atheism, you find hopelessness and despair. In all other religions, you find labor and work that depends upon you, and you end your days with a complete lack of assurance. With the grace of God, you can be confident not only that God exists, but that he loves you and he's given you eternal life. And so I encourage you, if you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, what can I hear with confidence? Share your love for God with confidence because God is real. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you have not left us without evidence, but you have left clues, you've left a trail, you've left markers all along the way, that you are real, you are true, you are powerful, you are awesome, and remarkably, you love us. Father, I do pray that we would walk out of here with a great sense of confidence in you. And that confidence would translate into a sense of boldness and a longing, a desire that our friends and our family and even strangers that we meet would know you, the one true God, and that they would worship you and love you forever. It's in Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week. Walk out in the confidence of the Lord.